Welcome to the Wellbeing for Real Life podcast. Have you ever wanted to live life better, but found yourself baffled, bewildered, and bored by complicated, confusing, and condescending advice? This podcast is the antidote. I'm Dr. Richard Pyle, GP, lifestyle medicine specialist, and author of Fit for Purpose. Each episode, I'm joined by leading experts as we explore different areas that affect our everyday lives. This is the Wellbeing for Real Life podcast. Hello, and welcome to Wellbeing for Real Life. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about food and nutrition. I'm Dr. Richard Pyle, GP with a special interest in cardiovascular and lifestyle medicine and author of Fit for Purpose. And my guest today is Dr. Asim Melhotra. Asim, for Listeners who haven't yet enjoyed the podcast, uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure, of course. Uh, I'm a consultant cardiologist by background, qualified in Edinburgh Medical School 2001. So I've been practicing in the NHS for almost two decades. I'm also a visiting professor of evidence-based medicine, a big proponent of the lifestyle medicine movement. And my personal mission, Richard, is to save lives a million at a time. Thank you, Asim. Now, you and I have known each other for a couple of years or so now, and this is a, a topic that we've discussed repeatedly and you've written on i have read the pioppy diet i have watched the big fat fix so i'd just like to start getting straight to it and to ask you the question seem if it's true that we're all getting fatter whose fault is it so first and foremost the main reason we are getting fatter which has been you know uh, something and has been increasing the prevalence in western populations in the uk certainly since the 1980s the evidence that i've analyzed and looked at suggests that almost all of this is due to the types and the amounts of foods that we're eating. So this is a a diet problem predominantly. And when you look at the root causes behind that, the drivers have been really something that's changed in the food environment. So when we talk about the food environment, we're talking about the oversupply of cheap, sugary, ultra-processed foods that now dominate, make up the bulk of much of the British diet, half of the calories we're consuming. And to look at the drives behind what's driven that or what's behind that sort of increase in consumption, it's the food industry predominantly. So they are the culprits, in my view. They are the biggest culprits behind this obesity epidemic in terms of the types of foods they produce, the way they market them, the misleading in health information, and the fact that a lot of these foods are deliberately designed to encourage overconsumption. They interfere with appetite control mechanisms. So for me, it's very clear the biggest culprits behind this has really been the corporate greed, if you like, of the food industry. Okay. So when I was um, a little bit younger and less experienced as a GP, I once said to one of my patients, unfortunately, I'm never going to be able to sell many copies of a a diet book, which essentially is a piece of paper on which is written, eat less, move more. Are you suggesting that there's more to it than that because some people might say well actually you know you decide what food you put in your mouth you decide how physically active you are there's the whole issue of of, of fat shaming isn't there related to that so so are you saying there's more nuance to it than that absolutely so i think eat less move more hasn't worked so theoretically it sounds great but the question we need to be asking ourselves is what's encouraging this overconsumption so you can tell people to eat less richard but you can't tell them to stop feeling hungry so why are we consuming more food? Why are we, what's suddenly changed in, you know, we've been, for millennia, we've been absolutely fine. In the last few decades, we've got this massive increase in people being overweight or having excess body fat. And that comes down to something clearly in the environment. And it's the types of foods that we're eating that encourage overconsumption. In terms of the personal responsibility argument, I think uh, that has a role to play. Of course, we all have 
exercise personal responsibility to some degree. But to really properly exercise personal responsibility, you need to have knowledge, the correct information. You need to have choice. You need to have access to healthy foods. And it needs to be affordable. And for many people, that doesn't exist. And for most people, they're not getting all of those four. So we need to address that. And then once we do address that, we realize actually this is not predominantly an issue of personal responsibility. This is an issue of uh, the fact that ultra-processed food or junk food has become unavoidable wherever you go, whether it's uh, not just on the high street, whether it's in the petrol station. Even our hospitals, Richard, for me, when I started my campaigning, you know, I started with focusing on hospital food. Even our hospitals have become a branding opportunity for the junk food industry. You know, 75% of the food purchased in hospitals, places where people go to get better, is junk food, both amongst staff and visitors and patients. So there's clearly something wrong. It's gone to such a degree. This, these sorts of foods have become available to anyone, anywhere at any time, even someone who's bed bound in the hospital who can't even go to the shop where they, they're selling the sort of food. There are contracts with hospitals where sugary drinks, crisps, and confectionery has to be brought to their bedside. This is just extraordinary. And what it does is it legitimizes the acceptability of the consumption of these foods. It makes them, you know, people think subconsciously or consciously that it's not that important. It's not having a big effect on their health. Because if it was, why is the place where I've come to get better and, and, and to heal, why are they serving me these foods? It clearly isn't a problem. So you've got to throw all of these things in to try and understand what's going on when it comes to the obesity epidemic. And you and I are both broadly in agreement on that. I think environment, our our default settings is is so important. And and I'm aware, you know, I I practice in in an area which is probably quite affluent, generally speaking. But, you know, within that area, there are pockets of deprivation where life is very different for some of my patients compared to others. And, And making those choices, particularly when it's what's right in front of them is really difficult. If we move beyond the, the environmental setting, because I know that you know, you've campaigned for, uh, on a national scale for better nutrition, and I, I'm fully supportive of that, absolutely. If, if we move beyond that in terms of individuals and their knowledge and their choices, you talked about knowledge being important. If you're talking to someone, a patient, for example, it can be really complicated, can't it? Or at least it can feel complicated. You know, you and I are both on social media, we see all these different diets that are proposed. We've got the the vegans going toe-to-toe with the carnivore lot uh, and people going into really quite high levels of detail about what to me sometimes seem like very small bits of a diet. How do you approach it if, if a patient is struggling? How do you break it down for them and, and I, make it digestible? I keep it, it I keep it very simple. I explain to them why, that first of all, it's not their fault. I think it's really important for us as doctors, clinicians, to empathize with our patients. You know, there are two keys to the, to successful patient outcome, Richard. One is your clinical knowledge and your clinical expertise. And the other one, other side, which often is often is unfortunately neglected, is patient empathy. So empathize with the patient, tell them it's not their fault, because it isn't actually. It's not that we're we're lying to them. It isn't, in most cases, isn't their fault. You know, circumstances and misinformation has brought and led them into the consultation room in the first place, in many cases. And then I explain to them, listen, you know, I, I just break it down and say, what's actually going on here? is this is not you being greedy or slothful. Something is driving your consumption. Often it's, you know, there's mental issues related to it, but it's often the environment. It's, it's just misunderstanding, not realizing that actually the stuff, that the 200 calorie shake or something, whatever ultra processed food you're putting in your mouth, isn't just 200 calories. It's doing all these things to your body, to your hormones. It's going to 
have an adverse effect on your health, but also what it's doing is increasing your appetite. And I tell them that if they break the addiction from ultra-processed foods and sugar, that's two baseline things that they can do and explain how to do it, then they will actually find they're not fighting their hunger. They will feel fuller for longer and it will make it easier for them. It's not necessarily going to be the silver bullet for everybody, but it makes it much easier for them to lose weight and reduce the consumption of all these unnecessary calories that are contributing to weight gain and making them unwell. And when you talk about ultra-processed food, to seem again, that I find that potentially a complex concept to discuss. I mean, I jokingly say to, to patients that if the ingredients on a, on a food packet read like a chemistry test, then, you know, it's probably a highly processed food. But how, how, do you, how do you define that? If someone says, yeah. Dr. Mahotra, you've told me not to eat ultra-processed food. What, what yes. do you mean by that? Yeah, so for the purposes of the listeners, first and foremost, this, is, this comes from an international classification that's been developed in Brazil called the NOVA, N-O-V-A. Doesn't, it's not an abbreviation, it's just called NOVA classification. And they've categorized various different food groups. And ultra-processed foods essentially are any packaged food that has five or more ingredients, usually with unhealthy oils, sugar, and starch, and comes with additives and preservatives. So I, I break it down to my page and say, listen, if it comes out of a packet and you can count five or more ingredients with ultra-processed and best avoided. Now, that is now 50% of the calories being consumed in the British diet. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, right? And about 70% of our sugar consumption actually comes from these hidden sugars in these sorts of foods. So I say it's about eating real food or minimally processed food, avoiding the ultra-processed stuff. And I just explain to them, this is what you do from a very, you know, people can count five ingredients. Most people can do that quite easily. This is just even applies to packaged, you know, the bread, brown bread in the supermarket is ultra-processed food. I explain to patients, this is toxic to your body. You should not be eating this stuff. You know, if you look at the ingredients, if people listen to this, go into the supermarket, next time you go in, pick up a, you know, I'm not going to name a particular brand, but pick up a loaf of brown bread and count how many ingredients are on the back of it. You know, there's about 12, 15, sometimes 20 ingredients. It's extraordinary. And it's got additives and preservatives. And the science behind this as well also, it's not just something that, you know, I'm making up here. This is, you know, scores of studies now showing the consumption of these foods are linked to many diseases, but also this data shows how it has an adverse effect on the bacteria in the gut so it kind of affects adversely the good bacteria in the gut and promotes bad bacteria which in itself drives what we call inflammation in the body and also is another driver of these diseases so mm. i think that that's what we should be focusing on and when people say well uh you know actually ultra processed food is really cheap i only have to pay you know a pound or a pound 99 for my ready meal how do you approach that in terms of the, the costs of, of yeah, eating well? That, that's a very difficult one to approach, uh, and it's an important point you raise, Richard. So me personally, I'm you know, campaigning, and you know, I was somebody that was very um, uh, instrumental in bringing about sugar drinks tax and all that kind of stuff. So policy changes need to happen where we make healthy foods more affordable and make these sorts of junk food, ultra-processed food more expensive. And that on a population level will absolutely shift things towards people eating healthier. But for individuals, it's a bit more challenging. And it's just, they will know themselves. They will have to figure out how much they're able to spend. But even if they can't reach that utopia of completely quitting all ultra-processed food, they can certainly shift towards healthy food. Mm. So for example, you know, an apple is cheaper than a chocolate bar, right? So I just tell them just yeah. to have a little bit of think about the, the whole fruit and vegetables generally, actually, are not that expensive. They can be cheaper, but they're not that expensive. But you're right, of course, you can get packets of, of sweets or biscuits that you know, have, uh, you know, big bags full that have about 2000 calories in them and cost no more than a couple of quid. 
I think it's also trying to help them to understand that it that extra little bit that they may have to pay is going to pay them health dividends in the short and long mm. term as well. Yeah, it's something that they can take into account, isn't it? There are there are other benefits to to doing that. I think the point you made just then is really important in that just like we've talked pragmatically about sleep and about movement in previous episodes, we need to recognize that you know, we don't need to achieve perfection here, do we? If someone's currently eating, let's call it a rubbish diet, you know, seven days a week, well, if they, if they eat better two days a week or three or four days a week, clearly that's an improvement on the current situation. And it may be that economically, you know, they could have some days where they go for the slightly more costly food and other days just accept that we don't live in a perfect world. I, for one, sometimes I have been known, as any of my uh, colleagues at surgery will, will tell you, to you know, pop into town and purchase a beverage from a, an unnamed coffee shop, which has probably got more sugar in it than is good for me. But in reality, that's just part of life. You know, yeah. Moderation, I think, is what I preach. Yeah, I think yeah. The problem with people don't understand moderation a lot of the time. What is it? You know, it doesn't have that. Um, but I think that, that what I do agree with you, Richard, is that it's. I say that once you know, I give people a kind of try and do this for a month because you can see health benefits from dietary changes very quickly. But also, it's not necessarily a long term thing that you have to live like this forever. If you're going to not, if you don't enjoy the diet that you're going to be on, there's there's also no mm. point. You know, quality of life also is affected by food. I then say the 80-20 rule, you know, try and make, instead of having those treats every day, reserve them for the weekend. That sometimes often is enough for people to kind of feel like they can manage, you know, that they're not completely restricting themselves from having a pizza on the weekend or fish and chips or whatever it is that they enjoy eating. Because, you know, these are enjoyable foods. The problem is we're just overdosing on them. And I think one of the problems for me is the use of the word diet, really, in that people will say, I'm on a diet. And you and I might use the word diet possibly not in quite the same sense as, as medical professionals, but I think for, for many of us, it implies self-denial, sacrifice, maybe eating foods that aren't all that enjoyable, kind of short-term maybe to get, get some accelerated weight loss. So one of the things I, I talk to patients about is to try not to think of it in those terms, more of a, a way of life and something which is sustainable and, and pleasurable, you know, finding yes. food that you like. And it, it may be that two or three meals a week, you you look at a healthier version, in quotes, of what you've been eating that involves a bit more in the way of vegetables, a bit less in the way of, of processed food, and you, you gradually build up your repertoire of better versions of those kind of things. Yes, for sure. I think that's key, is that I also am motivated in saying this is really enjoyable. And certainly with the evolution of all the sort of science around nutrition and health, clearly we know now that eating fat providing you've got the ultra processed food and you minimize the low quality carbohydrates eating fat is you know i use this line is as likely to make you fat as eating green vegetables is to turn you green you know my cardiac patients are really happy when i tell them they can enjoy a steak a couple of two or three times a week it's not going to give them heart disease you know it's the ultra processed food that's a major issue and and the starchy foods are low quality carbohydrates the carbohydrates like the the breads and the pastas and the rices that lack fiber having too much of that for example is not going to be and it obviously depends where you're starting from but, you know, in our country now, unfortunately, you know, more than 6% of the adult population are overweight or obese. And I actually talk about being overfat in terms of excess body fat probably affects around 80% of people because body mass index, this measurement tool we use to assess someone's having a healthy weight is, is outdated. It actually fails to pick up up to 40% of people who will have excess body fat who have been told they've got a normal BMI, body mass index, which is just a marker of your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. It doesn't take into consideration your 
ethnicity, your age, your muscle mass, mm. your all that kind of thing, body fat percentage. So one of the other things I also tell people is that even if you don't lose weight, if you do certain dietary changes and adopt a certain type of dietary pattern, which has a mixture of whole fruit and vegetables and some olive oil and nuts and oily fish, that kind of thing, and you minimize the, the junk food, that in itself, independent of weight loss, will have a beneficial effect on your health in terms of reducing risk of heart disease. Mm. So that's also a little motivational factor that people, if they, you know, if they struggle, for example, to lose massive amounts of weight, but they've changed their diet, they're already, they should be, they should realize that they're already in a much better place and they're healthier, even if they haven't lost loads of weight. That's really helpful because sometimes patients don't lose that weight either because it's hard for them to make changes or perhaps because, you know, they've lost some fat and they've put on some muscle and they stand on the scales Yeah, and uh, exactly. they struggle a bit with that. I think that's a really good point to make. And another thing I, I tend to say to patients as well, and I know, I know that you've, you've often been quoted as saying you can't outrun a, a bad diet. A lot of my patients say to me, right, I'm, I, I know I need to lose a couple of stone docks. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to do a load more exercise. How do you address that without yeah. sort of discouraging them? No, I explain to them that you, you know, keeping, keep moving, but it's all about what you put in the top end. You can't run a bad diet and that actually I explain to them that, you know, that 75% of all the calories that your body burns happens from doing nothing at all, just for you to mm. breathe, for your heart to function. So I explain all that to them and say, oh, and then they kind of get it a little bit. I'm not telling them not to be inactive, but one, you know, really good quotes that kind of emphasizes this point came from a former a surgeon called Lord Ian McCall. He was a shadow health minister when Margaret Thatcher was, was prime minister. You know, he's very much interested in obesity. And he gave a quote for an article I wrote where he said, you know, an obese person doesn't need to do one, doesn't need to increase their level of activity one iota in order to lose weight. They just need to eat less. Okay. Of course, eat less stuff isn't, it's about, it's about healthy weight loss. That's the crucial thing. But I just make that point to them that actually they're going to find. And the other thing as well, Richard, is for many people, and certainly for myself, I know this, exercise actually is sometimes a way of putting on weight, not just about muscle, it increases appetite for a lot of people. So if you're in a situation where you're doing more exercise and you're feeling really hungry and then you're over consuming the wrong types of foods, it can actually send you the other way from a weight perspective. And we forget to mention all of this stuff. Plus, all the data shows us when it comes to weight loss, when you compare sort of randomized trials of people that just did a dietary intervention versus people that did a dietary intervention and exercise, there was no difference in weight. In fact, in, in, in many cases, the dietary intervention alone caused more weight loss than doing the activity, probably because the activity might, if it's overdone, increase stress hormones, probably because it's increasing appetite, all these other things that are thrown in there. So keep the activity moderate, keep it simple. I mean, people who are very overweight, in particular, it's actually over-exercising can be damaging. It may, while they're very overweight, can increase the risk of injuries and all that kind of thing. So they should just be keeping it very moderate, doing the dietary changes, losing the amount of body fat in a healthy way, and then they actually find they can do more activity for their enjoyment and their health. You know, so so, um, so that's that, that's that, really encouraging because then the patients that say to me, "Well, no, I should be more active, but I've got bad arthritis in my knees," you know, I can say to them, "Well, the good news is that actually to lose weight." You know, you don't need to be running up and down the, the block. And another point that I also make to patients as well is that in terms of making a sustainable long-term approach to it, I tend to say to them, look, let's talk about your lifestyle and the way that you want to live and the reasons that you want to live like that. Because actually, if you've made those healthy changes, whether it's better sleep, better nutrition, better movement, weight loss should be perhaps ideally a, a side effect, a, a beneficial yes. consequence of that not necessarily for most people, not the primary goal in Absolutely. terms of measuring numbers. Absolutely. Yeah. Health first, weight loss is a side effect. And that's what I tell them. 
And I think that's also, yeah. And I think we're being more honest and more scientific in that approach, actually. Because weight loss on its own, you can lose weights in lots of ways. You can starve yourself. That's not going to be healthy. So how about let's focus on the healthy stuff and the side effect will be probably in most cases will be weight loss as well. So since we like to keep it practical on this podcast, we've covered a lot there in a short space of time, but let's narrow it down and focus it as, as we come towards the end. Should we start with a couple of tips, top tips each as to how you would recommend people approach food? Yeah, I would say, um, depending where you're starting from, I would say the first thing to do is break the addiction, the cycle you've got to, you know, these foods are actually addictive and you need to go cold turkey to get the best effect if you can. So I'd say cut the ultra processed food, maybe just start with that, the simple measure. And if you can, then after that, or at the same time, the low quality carbohydrates to break the addiction to the very high sort of glucose, high starchy foods, if you like, that's what I would say. That's a good starter. I also talk to people about setting up their environment for success. So if you want to make these changes, clearly what's in your cupboards and what you keep on your desk and what you take to work with you, all of those things influence what you end up eating. Well, that, that determines what you end up eating, doesn't it? So I talk to people about you know getting rid of some of the, the highly processed stuff in their cupboards, thinking about you know making their packed lunches, and just uh, the kind of snacks that they like to have within arm's reach on the desk, and you know putting the slightly less healthy in quote stuff maybe at the back of the cupboard so when they choose mindfully to have a treat that's absolutely fine because life's about moderation but they're making a deliberate decision to do that as opposed yeah. to kind of reaching out and grabbing a handful of whatever's on their desk yeah absolutely i think that's really important richard actually if people can prove their environment themselves it makes it much easier and less likely for them to choose those pick-me-up junk foods what about the timing of um of eating assume because there's quite a lot of information out there about various terms but the one i've heard used commonly is, is time restricted eating do you uh, have a view on that when it comes to a, a well i think for, for some people it helps and it's fine i would just say i you know your body's telling you when you're hungry eat till eat when you're hungry and eat till you're full and and if you're eating nutritious healthy foods you'll be fine you know but some people can obviously benefit from fasting or time restricted eating yes and if they do it and they enjoy it that's great i think the downside is for some people if you're stressed it can actually make the situation your stress levels worse because your cortisol levels get raised when you're kind of fasting or whatever and that can have a very detrimental effect. So just see where you're at. Mm. And if it's something you do and you enjoy and you feel fine, great, carry on. If you're not able to do it, then I wouldn't worry. I don't, I don't personally think that there is any very strong data at the moment that it has a hugely additional beneficial effect. Certainly not for weight loss. It doesn't do that. It may have some effect, and the, uh, the science is evolving on this, about you know uh, starving the body from uh, from food for for a certain amount of time could have regenerative effects on the body but that most of that data has come from animal studies but it's an evolving space in terms of humans okay thank you i think that leads on to my last tip really where you were talking about people taking an approach that's right for them and and my last tip i think is is about really being kind to yourself just like we talked about the reasons why we might have disordered sleep in a previous episode, you know, there are lots of reasons why people might have what you could view as disordered eating. Yeah. Um, it, it could just be that we live in a toxic environment with, for all, with all the challenges that you've already outlined. But of course, a lot of it can come from adverse life experiences as well, particularly adverse childhood experiences. And again, there may be issues that perhaps people need to talk to a friend or counsellor or their doctor about in, in order to actually address some of those deep-seated underlying issues before they fret too much about calories or the type of diet that they're consuming and just giving themselves a break and recognizing that you know what some days they will have a good day other days might not be such a, a good day but at least they've still had the good day and I think if being kind to themselves and, and learning from maybe mistakes plans they made that didn't come to fruition and and instead of being defeated by that instead of giving up on it just using that 
knowledge to to build on it to make it more likely that they'll succeed in in finding a way that works for them next time yeah sure and of course some of these people are going to need extra help richard as well so we need to remember that of course all these things are linked and and there may be mental health issues there may be excessive stress they may need extra guidance and support from for example um a health coach, a nutritional therapist, a dietitian, for example. So I think we need to realize that the multidisciplinary team as well is there. And for some patients, actually, just beyond the general advice, they may need extra support. And hopefully we can guide them and help them get that. Excellent. I think that is a really good note on which to end. Thank you once again for your time today, Asim. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hope our listeners have too. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you, Richard. It's been my pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to Wellbeing for Real Life with me, Dr. Richard Pyle. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a nice review and tell other people about it. If you'd like to learn more, my book Fit for Purpose is out now, published by Harper Inspire and available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. You can also follow me on Twitter, YouTube, and my website, wellbeingforreal.life. This podcast was recorded at Monkey Nut Audiobooks. Until next time, Take care of yourself.